If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Probably the most, most elusive virtue in all of the Christian life is that of humility. Andrew Murray, uh, a great Christian of many years gone by, once said, Humility is that elusive trait that the moment you think you have it, you've lost it. In other words, if you stand and think, oh, I'm humble, then you're not. I've told you many times, and you rarely ever get the joke, but there was a man who was the most humble man in town. And so the townspeople got together, and they had a medal cast for him, most humble man in town. He wore it one day, so they took it away from him. See, humility must be a lack of self-awareness. Now, the opposite of humility is pride. And pride is something that afflicts all of us. Pride is mentioned scores of times in the Old Testament as being a sin that God detests. We are, we are admonished repeatedly in the New Testament. Uh, in at least three places, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. There was an occasion where the disciples uh, during the ministry of Jesus were arguing about who was the greatest. And so Jesus took a child and he set the child among them and he said, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The, 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 the section that I want to deal with this morning, beginning at verse 27, in most translations of the Bible, is a new paragraph. And, and rightly so. The section that it introduces between 27 and 31 is uh, expounding on what has come in verses 21 through 26. In 21 through 26, we have the plan of salvation. And it can be summed up, summed up by saying that the work of Jesus Christ brings us justification by grace through faith alone. That is the plan that God has devised to save men and women. The next five verses, which make up a second paragraph, uh, give us three consequences or implications of this plan of salvation. Uh, the first is that this way of salvation, by grace through faith, excludes boasting. You can't be proud about it. If you are proud that you have become a Christian, by your efforts you have not become a Christian. Pride is excluded. And then the second consequence is that this plan of salvation provides a way of salvation for everybody, Jew and Gentile, and that's everybody. And the third is that far from allowing a person to indulge in immorality or law-breaking, as some suppose, this plan of salvation actually upholds the law. God's way of salvation provides a level of morality which mere adherence to the law, apart from the grace of the God in the gospel, cannot even dream of. 
It is a far higher level of morality than the legalist could ever presume. And so these three great consequences of the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, will occupy us in the next uh, couple of studies. And aren't you, aren't you thrilled that, that in a little over a year we've come through three chapters of Romans? I mean, is that amazing or what? No chorus of amens. All right. So, God's way of salvation is by grace through faith and the finished work of Jesus Christ, and it excludes boasting. It is highly appropriate that the first implication of the doctrine, doctrine of justification by faith concerns boasting, because boasting is related to pride and expression of it. And pride is the greatest of all sins, according to biblical Christianity. As a matter of fact, sins, all sins proceed from pride in some form or another. In the Middle Ages, uh, churchmen identified pride as the first of the seven deadly sins. Now, we find that a bit quaint today, but pride should never be thought of as a harmless flaw because pride is deadly. It is deadly to the soul. Pride is the place where Christian morality differs most sharply from all other moral systems. Pride is the one sin that everybody everywhere is guilty of, the sin that we hate to see in others and that we rarely think we have committed. It is very rare for us to think that we have committed the sin of pride. You will, you will hear people admit that they're bad-tempered, that they are susceptible to uh, uh, strong drink, that, that, that they uh, have a problem with lust, or that they are cowards, that they value the opinion of men more than that of God. But you don't, you don't hear people confess to the sin of pride. As a matter of fact, I've never heard anyone confess the sin of pride except a believer. And ironically, none but Christian people show mercy to those who have committed the sin of pride. There is no fault which makes a person more unpopular and no fault, fault that we are more unconscious of in our own self than the sin of pride. The more pride that we have, the more we dislike it in others. And there is a reason for that, and I'm going to tell you. <laughs> but that is just kind of a strange thing, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Why are we so unconscious of this vice in ourselves? Why is it so hard for us to recognize pride in our own lives? And why do we hate it so much in the lives of others when we see that they are guilty of it? And I think the answer is found in the very nature of pride. Pride is essentially competitive. It is competitive by its very nature. While other sins, I would say, are, are competitive only by accident. <laughs> but pride 
is deliberately competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only in having more of it than someone else. We, we say that people are proud of being rich, are clever, are good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer, are more clever, are more good-looking. People are not proud of being hard workers. They're proud that they work harder than someone else. See, it's, com it's competitive. Pride sets us against our fellow man so that we can be better than they are. And so it's hard to recognize this sin in ourselves. That's why humility is so difficult because we have so much to be proud of. <laughs> if someone else became equally rich or equally clever or equally hardworking or equally good-looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. We're only proud because we're better than they are. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. The pleasure of being just a little better than everyone else. C.S. Lewis once said, It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You will find good fellowship, uh, jokes, and friendliness among unchaste people or drunkards. But pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and his fellow man, but enmity to God. Pride was the very first sin. Most theologians believe that the account in Isaiah 14 is a, a secondary reference to the fall of Satan, who was one of God's chief angels. But he said, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the, on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Uh, Satan had eye problems. You, you, you read there, there's five different eyes. I will do this. I will do this. Pride made Satan want to ascend into heaven and be higher than God. Uh, but the Bible says that it actually brought him down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Pride was the sin of Eve. She wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil. She wanted to do that which God had specifically commanded her not to do. But when she sinned, she didn't become like God. Instead, she became like Satan in his perversion. Her knowledge was a knowledge that was not gained by obedience and walking by faith with God, but rather by disobedience. Pride was the sin of Adam. He couldn't stand even one small prohibition cramping his autonomy 
God had said, of all of the trees of the garden, you may freely eat, but don't eat this one. And Adam said, no, nah, God's holding out on me. He doesn't, he doesn't want me to have that, and it's, I'm going to have it. Uh, Adam wanted to be a law unto himself, and he brought ruin upon himself and upon the entire human race. So where in the range of human experience and relationships is pride most evident and at the same time most clearly wrong and inappropriate? What is the epitome of boasting and of pride? Is it in the sphere of daily work? Do we show our pride most in thinking of ourselves as better than the people that we work with? Is it our social relationships? Is pride most evident because we think that we are uh, more sophisticated and more charming than those that we uh, socialize with? The person that wants to be the center of attention at any gathering? Uh, are those the most prideful people that we know? I think not. I think the sphere in which people show the most pride is religion. And there is good reason for that. Religion, not true Christianity, but religion, generically speaking, is the ultimate setting for the worst expressions of pride. For it is in religion, and it alone, that we are able to claim that God, not mere human beings, sets his approval on us as being superior to others. Well, God approves of what I do. Well, that's the ultimate. And the more demanding, the more rigorous the religion is, the more prideful we become. You find, you find the greatest pride among legalistic people in the evangelical church. The most prideful people are those who run around bragging, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with the girls that do. So I'm better than all of you because I don't do these things. So pride becomes a real issue the more rigorous the standards you set. If you need an example, you only have to look to the example that Jesus gave of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The tax collector, you remember, stood afar off. But the Pharisee stood and said, God, how I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this filthy tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything that I get. Now, what's the problem here? Was the Pharisee lying? Was he only pretending to fast twice a week? Was he lying about the fact that he tithed on, on everything that he had? Was he like Ananias and Sapphira? Was he actually keeping something back of that 10%? Was he only given 9.98%, not really 10? I don't think so. I, I don't think he was lying at all. I think he really did fast twice a week. 
I think he really did give a tenth of all that he had received to the temple. By outward standards, he was significantly superior to the tax collector. I mean, the tax collector admitted he was a sinner. Actually, he says he's the sinner, and he is in need of God's mercy. But you see, that's it. That's where the problem lies. If the Pharisee had been asking another human being to appraise his achievements and declare him superior to the tax collector, it would have been unpleasant and perhaps inappropriate, but it could have been done. I mean, if we were have asked our opinion, we might have agreed with the Pharisee's assessment. I mean, it might have left a bad taste in our mouth, but we would have said, yeah, okay, yeah, he, he does fast twice a week. I've observed it. And I know for a fact he does give 10% of all he has to the temple. We would have acknowledged it and disliked it without really even knowing why. But the Pharisee was not asking a mere human being for approval. He was demanding it of God. He was saying to God, God, you approve me because I am worthy of it. I have come to you as one who is upright, righteous, holy, good. So you approve of what I have done. <laughs> it's inappropriate to, enough to submit one's pride to a human tribunal, but to stand before the God of heaven and demand his approval based on something that we have done to expect a righteous and holy God to endorse our self-inflated opinion of ourselves? If the Pharisee had ever truly become aware of God, he would have been standing over with the tax collector and he would have said, even this tax collector is better than I am. I am wholly unworthy. Why is it that we think that other people's sins are always worse than ours? I might have, you know, yeah, I might have sinned. I, I might have done something. But yeah, I didn't do what Rich Wade did. I mean, you know, I mean I, you know. Why do we do that? We, and we all do that. Don't, don't, don't look at you, with me with your little Baptist faces and say, I, I've never done that. You have too? Now you've added lying to it. It's terrible. I do it all the time. How horrible. Why is that? Because we're proud. Because we don't want to admit our own sin. Because we do not want to admit how prideful we are. And how much we are competing against others thinking that we are holier than they are because of what we have done. The fact that the Pharisee did not see himself as a sinner in need of mercy shows that he did not know God at all. In this plan of salvation, boasting is excluded. So how are we to forget about ourselves? How are we to get rid of pride in our lives? It's, it's the very nature of pride to do the opposite. 
And the answer is we cannot do it ourselves. That is what being saved by grace means. It means we can't save ourselves. We are no more able to save ourselves or forget about ourselves than other human beings are. But we are enabled to forget about ourselves when we turn our attention to Jesus Christ who died for our sins. And when we bind all of our hope of life and the forgiveness of sin in him, then we can forget about ourselves. Which brings us to our text in verses 27 and 28. Salvation by grace is the one doctrine that undercuts all boasting. Think of the possible ways that men think themselves to be right with God and see how they are excluded by salvation by grace. Morality. The chief grounds on which man thinks that he can save himself is by being moral, the doing of good things. If they believe that they are saved by this and others are not saved, then they are approved by God. And approved by God means that they are better people. That was the case with the Pharisee. That's the case with many religious people today. They look upon religion as the ultimate area for human achievement. Look how great I am. God approves of me. See, I don't do this, I don't do this, but I do this and this and this. I check all the boxes. I don't do all of these things. My, what a marvelous person I am. Why, I'll probably strut right into heaven one day because I am so moral. And again, the more rigorous the religion is, the more pride there is in it. Because you see, you can earn accolades in some other field, in business, art, or, or academics. Ah, but to be proclaimed by God, to be acclaimed by him, that's the greatest prize of all. And so these people make up their own sets of rules and then expect God to praise them because they keep them. They fast twice a week. They give a tenth of all they possess. They don't miss Sunday school for 83 years. And, and they take great pride in it. Nothing wrong with not missing Sunday school for 83 years if you can live that long. But if it becomes a source of pride, if you think that that's what's saving you, you got a real problem, people. You got a real problem. I, I have been a Christian for a lot of years, 59. I have been a Southern Baptist pastor for 40, nearly 47 years. I've pastored five Southern Baptist churches. I have been in 14 countries in the world preaching the gospel on four continents. I told you, I, I added up one time in, in my years in the ministry, I've preached over 7,500 sermons, a minimum. And let me tell you what all of that gains me as far as entrance, entrance into heaven. Nothing. Nothing. All of that without grace is absolutely zero. You remember what zero is? 
Zero is nothing with the rim kicked off of it. Nothing. Apart from grace, your accomplishments don't mean anything. Salvation through the work of Jesus Christ undercuts all boasting. For even the best of our righteousness is not righteousness enough. In fact, it is far worse than not good enough. It is actually evil, for it feeds the pride that lies within all of us. So over against pride and morality, the Bible says there is no one righteous, not even one. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. What about pious feelings? In past ages, people worried about doing good, and for them, the danger of trusting in morality was great. People really did think that they could be saved by doing better than other people. That's changed somewhat today. Now, we think that pious feelings are good enough. Are you a believer? Well, I have such warm thoughts about God. You know, whenever I think of God, I just kind of get a, I just kind of get a chill, and and a, and a and a warm feeling comes over me. I know I'm not very moral, but I have a tender heart. I, I have a, I I just feel so close to God, you know. Um, surely God will save someone as sensitive and woke as I am. Really then salvation must not be of grace. It must be a matter of debt or of works. So over pride and pious feelings, the Bible says there is no one who seeks after God. What about knowledge? Some people think they're going to be saved because they have superior religious knowledge, and they take pride from that. They're not especially moral. They're not especially sensitive. They don't really care much about other people. But they know a great deal of doctrine. And they have a sound creed. How could God possibly condemn them when they know so much about the Trinity and can expound for hours on the hypostatic union of Christ? How could God possibly not let someone into heaven that knows so much about redemption and propitiation, justification, the extent of the atonement, and the perseverance of the saints? How could God not welcome someone that has all of that knowledge when they've spent all of these years memorizing all of these Bible verses? We saw last week that knowledge is essential to faith. Faith must have content. But no one will be saved by knowledge. The devil knows more doctrine than you and I put together. But he is not saved. Knowledge is not faith itself. So over against our pride in knowledge, the Bible says there is no one who understands. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What about faith? Faith is the most perdicious ground of all for human boasting. And this is a particular danger for the evangelical. We know that you're not saved by works, or at least that's what we say. And we know that pious feelings doesn't do you any good. And just having knowledge 
is not sufficient. But what about faith? Some people, if you press them on it, they will admit that in the final analysis, the reason they're not going to heaven, they're going to heaven is not because of good works, but because they have believed. If you ask someone, well, why are you going to heaven and others are not? Well, I believed. <laughs> and so, really, they think when they get to heaven, there will be a little bit of boasting, because after all, I believed, and others did not believe. That's the difference between me and them. But if you think like that, faith becomes a work. Faith becomes something that you do that saves. Well, faith doesn't save you. Faith is the channel by which you are saved. It's a vehicle that brings the work of Christ to you. It is Jesus that saves. It is by faith. It is through faith. But faith doesn't save anybody. And besides that, faith is a gift of God. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Why did I exercise faith in Jesus Christ when others did not? Because God regenerated my spirit so that I could see the kingdom, so that I could see that I was a foul, vile, wretched sinner who had broken God's law. He gave me faith to believe that Jesus died for my sins and was buried and rose again the third day and that by believing in him, I might have eternal life. It was nothing that I did. It was everything that God did. Salvation is of the Lord. Faith is nothing but the instrument of our salvation. Nowhere in Scripture will you find that we are justified by our faith or that we are justified on account of our faith. Scripture doesn't say that. The Scripture says that we are justified by faith, through faith. Faith is nothing but the instrument or the channel that, by which this righteousness of God becomes ours. Not faith that saves us. It is the perfect work of Jesus Christ that saves us. It is Jesus that saves. His death upon the cross. The righteousness that we possess is Christ. It is imputed to us. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. There is no room for boasting in this salvation that comes by grace through faith. Let's do away with boasting in the church, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of us who are Christians are nothing but vile sinners saved by grace. And listen to me carefully. If you don't believe that, you're not saved. If you're not absolutely certain of that, you're not a Christian. For it is only by grace, through faith, that we can be saved. If you're trusting in your own morality, 
if you're trusting in your own good works if you're trusting in your knowledge of some doctrine or all of the doctrines if you're trusting in how many bible verses you have memorized if you're trusting in what you do for the church if you're trusting in anything anything except Jesus then you're not a Christian salvation is in Jesus Christ and him alone that's the message of Christianity and it excludes all boasting there is no room for boasting we're going to sing as a closing hymn the great old hymn by Augustus Toplady notice the words of the verse where he says not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands these for sin could not atone thou must save and thou alone in my hand no price I bring simply to thy cross I cling let's stand and have a word of prayer